Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to After Confucius Institutes, China's Enduring Influence on American Higher Education. Please welcome Walter Lohman, director of the Heritage Foundation's Asian Studies Center. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. Um, it's good to see you all on very short notice. Um, also glad to see so many people um, attending online. Uh, the, the, the session today will also be recorded on our website and archive there, so just so you know. Uh, this report from the National Association of Scholars after Confucius Institute is a real blockbuster. Uh, with Confucius Institutes around the country being shut down, uh, they'll go through the numbers here in a second, but I think 104 out of 118 of them have been uh, shut down. I think most of us thought the job was done and we could move on. Uh, but of course, the job here will never be done. Um, stemming, from, stemming these sorts of influence operations will be an ongoing challenge, will require eternal vigilance as long as the Chinese Communist, power, uh, Chinese Communist Party is in power. Uh, these institutes were never the equivalent of the British Council or Alliance Francaise or uh, the Goethe Institute. Uh, they are instruments of, of Chinese national power. They are essentially propaganda outlets. Uh, they're devoted to a mission that's diametrically opposed to U.S. national interests and our values. Uh, many of them teach a Chinese language, and, and that's a good thing. I think we all recognize the need that students have access to Chinese language to be able to learn Chinese. Uh, that's a good thing. But they're also used to control discourse on college campuses and beyond. In fact, I don't even think we know the full extent of the influence on uh, local uh, public school systems and, and that sort of thing. We're going to talk about that too. Uh, but this influence is exactly why the institutes have been closed. University administrators, sometimes reluctantly, have come to understand the pernicious effects that the institutes have on the mission of the university um, itself. Um, or have they? Have the universities come to this realization? And that's what we're here to talk about. It's not entirely clear because the institutes have begun to morph into new, uh, new forms, uh, new ways to influence uh, American public debate and, and US policy. To start off, to start us off, we're very pleased to have representative from Indiana's third district and chairman of the Republican Study Committee, uh, Jim Banks. In addition to being chairman of the, of the RSC, uh, where Heritage works with him quite closely, including on China, Congressman Banks is on the Armed Services Committee, as well as on the Committee of Veteran Affairs and Education and Labor. Uh, Congressman, I just want to say how much we appreciate you being here today, being a part of this, this program, helping us launch this, and helping National Association of Scholars, our, our co-hosts here, uh, launch it. But before I turn the podium over, I just want to uh, give a preview for the rest of the program so we can do this as efficiently as possible. After the Congressman finishes his remarks, Keith Whitaker, Chairman of the National Association of Scholars, will make a few remarks. Um, and then Rochelle Peterson, who is the uh, lead author on the report and a senior fellow with, uh, with uh, the National Association of Scholars, she'll come up and give us a, give us a briefing on the report. Um, we'll then go into a conversation or, or a discussion, Q&A session, um, with Rachel and Ian Oxfanon, another, another author on the report, so that we can walk 
walk through not just the findings, but we can answer questions that, that people have. So with that, let me turn the podium over to Congressman Banks to, to kick us off. Thank you. Thank you and good morning. It's great to be here. I was uh, here to speak last week on the importance of fiscal responsibility and balanced budgets. And I'm back uh, this week to speak about another very important topic. Before I start, I want to introduce a very important VIP in the room, my 10-year-old daughter, Elizabeth Banks. Can you wave at everybody, Betsy? Um, last week was her last week of school, so she was forced to spend the day with daddy at work today, which starts uh, with a very important speech at the Heritage Foundation. So take notes, Betsy, and let me know what you think after we're done. The speech is so important to her. Uh, what we're here to talk about today is important to her, to her generation. America cannot both control its own destiny in the century ahead and ignore the threat that the Chinese Communist Party poses uh, to our long-term uh, viability as a nation. When it comes to U.S. competition with China, one big misconception is that the competition is happening in secret, when in fact, examples of Chinese influence operations in the United States can be seen in public view. The Chinese Communist Party's United Front Work Department's mission is to influence foreigners and foreign institutions, and especially those in America. And their work can be seen on college campuses all over the country. Xi Jinping called the United Front his magic weapon for the Chinese people's great rejuvenation. There are at least 250 United Front tied organizations in the United States. The United Front also oversees Confucius Institutes. Confucius Institutes and Chinese universities established partnerships with American universities to receive government-funded research um, uh, uh, funding uh, on their campuses. Most of these partnerships aren't random. The United Front specifically targets universities with strong STEM programs. There have been several espionage attempts in recent years as the Chinese government steps up their influence operations at US universities. And here are just a few of the examples. In December of 2020, a Chinese Harvard-affiliated cancer researcher was caught uh, with 21 vials of cells stolen from a laboratory from a Boston hospital. A Chinese professor conducting sensitive research at the University of Kansas was indicted recently because he concealed, after he concealed his ties with a Chinese university. A Chinese scholar at the University of California, Los Angeles, was convicted for shipping banned missile technology back to China. A Chinese student at Chicago's Illinois Institute of Technology was charged with helping to recruit spies for China's version of the CIA. And a Chinese professor was recently accused of stealing American technology to benefit Huawei and returned to China after being sentenced to lying uh, to the FBI. President Trump led uh, the effort to take Chinese espionage attempts seriously during his administration. He was the first president to actually do so. In December of 2020, President Trump sanctioned the United Front Work Department for the very first time addressing a threat that was never addressed 
by the United States before. During the Trump presidency, the Department of Education began cracking down on universities' acceptance of foreign gifts under Section 117 of the Higher Education Act. Under President Trump, the US closed the Chinese consulate in Houston after finding an intelligence gathering operation aided by diplomats to collect scientific research from American universities. Uh, information on foreign gifts to universities was previously underreported and largely unnoticed by the United States government. But because of President Trump's leadership, 104 out of the 118 Confucius Institute branches on American university campuses have closed or were in the process of closing by 2022. However, the Biden administration fundamentally does not understand the China threat and has undone in a year and a half much of the progress that was done under President Trump. This administration cannot even bring itself to define China as an adversary. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman even used the phrase healthy competition to describe U.S. relations with China, parroting the Chinese Foreign Ministry's use of the same phrase in April 2021. She's singing off of the Chinese Communist Party's song sheet. The Biden administration also proposed defense budgets over the last two years that would underfund our warfighters amidst, amidst record high inflation. They even supported a DOD budget to cut 24 Navy ships out of commission. That's more than all of the ships that we lost at Pearl Harbor. By the end of 2021, the Biden administration didn't launch a single Section 117 investigation. In fact, American universities disclosed $1.6 billion in foreign donations from July of 6 of 2020 to January 20th of 2021, but just $4 million has been reported in Biden's first year in office, showing how unserious this administration is in, in uh, tracking what uh, the Chinese Communist Party is investing in on US campuses today. Democrats in Congress as well are not, not serious about dealing with the China threat. Their centerpiece China bill does little to nothing to take on China's theft of intellectual property, their military buildup, or their malign activities in the United States. The House bill even includes billions of dollars to the UN Climate Fund. Rather than countering China, these bills would in many ways help China. One of the main reasons that I oppose the Democrats' US Innovation and Competition Act, or the so-called Competes Act, is the lack of adequate guardrails for federal funds to universities. I'm greatly concerned that the direction that our country is heading in uh, is not addressing the China threat seriously. And the, this, this major piece of legislation that has some bipartisan support in both the House and the Senate is, uh, falls far from the mark. I introduced several pieces of legislation to address Chinese influence activities at US, US universities. My Countering Communist China Act is the Republican Study Committee's answer to the China challenge, an alternative, it's an alternative to USICA and the Competes Act, and I'm proud to tell you I have 54 colleagues who have joined me in co-sponsoring this important bill. This bill would do more to counter China with only a fraction of the cost. 
It funds our military, it funds border patrol, and it sanctions enforcement to take on China. It strengthens our laws to prevent the CCP's theft of intellectual property while also reforming our immigration system to stop, to stop CCP members from easily entering the United States. I also recently introduced a bill to amend Section 117 of the Higher Education Act and increase accountability on foreign gift reporting. This bill would not only strengthen scrutiny on foreign gifts and contracts to universities, but it would also give the federal government a say on whether universities can accept certain gifts and contracts. Additionally, my Protect Our University Act strengthens oversight on foreign students who are participating in sensitive university research and restricts the use of Huawei and ZTE in federally funded university research. In this year's Defense, National Defense Authorization Act, I introduced two amendments to address these threats. One of my amendments requires universities receiving Department of Defense funding to disclose the background of research personnel and foreign research collaboration. I also introduced an amendment to restrict DOD funding to universities with ties to Chinese defense and military establishments. I look forward to discussing those amendments with my colleagues at the House Armed Services Committee markup of the National Defense Authorization Act, which will occur tomorrow. Uh, next week when Republicans, or next year rather, when Republicans regain the majority in the House, I look forward to curbing China's influence operations in the US and passing several bills on this important topic. I can't think of anything that's more important to be a major part of this, the centerpiece of the Republican agenda when we take back the House majority next year than combating uh, this important threat, uh, this, this vital, vital threat to our country's security. With that, I wanna thank the Heritage Foundation for all that you're doing on this subject. Um, I, I applaud the conversation that you're having today, the, the research that you put out, the, the, the uh, work that you're going to discuss today is so important. Our office is here to back you up in any way. Thank you for letting me be a small part of what you're up to today. Have a good day, God bless. Well, thank you, Congressman Banks, for your uh, powerful words and deeds on the China threat. Uh, the National Association of Scholars is very grateful to the Heritage Foundation for hosting this event. I'm Keith Whitaker, Chairman of the Board of the NAS. Many of you know that NAS is an organization of 4,000 college faculty members, administrators, and citizens that promotes intellectual freedom, the pursuit of truth, and virtuous citizenship. For 35 years now, NAS has been a leader in advocating for liberal education rather than political correctness, for equality rather than racial privilege in admissions and hiring, and celebration rather than demonization of Western civilization. Now, if any of you know anything about higher education, you know that these positions do not exactly bring to mind a string of victories in the last 35 years. So I think it's all the more important to celebrate the occasional win. Such is the case with Confucius Institutes, those beachheads, as we've heard, of Chinese government influence on American higher education that NAS brought to wide public attention with our initial report on the subject in April of 2017. Since that time, as you heard, nearly 100 plus Confucius Institutes in the United States have appeared to close. In a moment, I'm gonna introduce Rochelle Peterson, who wrote our 2017 report, and who will now share NAS's findings about what China's United Front is up to next. To me, however, the story here is not only about the Chinese government's 
enduring influence on American higher education, but also about American higher education's openness to corruption. An interviewee in our 2017 report likened the Chinese regime to an anaconda wrapped in a chandelier. Normally, the great snake does not need to move. Everyone knows it's there, and they watch their step. When Rochelle first visited Confucius Institutes in New York and New Jersey back in 2016, she was met with one locked door after another. In contrast, the Chinese government has been pushing against an open door. The anaconda didn't have to sneak in to our universities and colleges. It was given a warm welcome. By whom? Well, the tenured radicals in the faculty are the cause of many dysfunctions in American higher education, but NAS's research actually shows that by and large, they've been pretty cool to Confucius Institutes. Rather, those who opened that door and have continued to try to keep it open are university administrators. For public consumption, they will claim that they're promoting diversity. In reality, the great attraction is Chinese government's money and flattery. So how best to respond? Well, for one thing, shame helps. The tarnish that NAS and others reporting brought to the reputation of Confucius Institutes no doubt contributed to the decision of many college presidents to rebrand or hide their connections to China. But the real power here lies in the purse strings. In my own view, the billions that the federal government spends on higher education probably does more harm than good. But so long as we're going to spend it, let's ensure that schools that accept that funding do not also accept the cool embrace of that anaconda, which aims to smother freedom of speech, civil rights, and civil society itself. So far from being a strategic masterstroke of Chinese soft power, I hope that Confucius Institutes become an example of how the American people, through their elected representatives, might yet save American higher education from itself. So now on to our speaker. So first we're going to have Rochelle Peterson. Rochelle's gonna be joined in the Q&A by Ian Oxvenad. Rochelle is a senior research fellow at NAS. In addition to authoring our three reports on uh, Confucius Institutes, Rochelle has produced in-depth research on the sustainability and divestment movements on college campuses. Rochelle earned her BA in politics, philosophy, and economics from the King's College. And then I'll also introduce Ian, who's gonna come up for the Q&A. Ian is a program research associate at NAS, where he's extending our work on foreign influence on American higher education, with particular focus on forensic financial investigation. Ian holds a PhD in political science from the University of California, and an MA in national security studies. So please welcome me, uh, join me in welcoming Rochelle and then Ian. Thanks. Well, thank you, Keith, so much for that introduction. And my thanks as well to Representative Banks for his excellent address and to all of you for being here. Um, and thank you to the Heritage Foundation for hosting. Um, I want to mention a couple of my colleagues uh, at the National Association of Scholars. So Ian uh, is uh, my co-author on this report, along with Florian. And um, I want to particularly point out uh, Ian because after six years of tracking Confucius Institutes and um, nine years of being with the National Association of Scholars. Uh, this is my last report for NAS. I'm um, stepping away to focus on my family and Ian will be heading up our research in that department going forward. Um, and I also want to point out Teresa Manning, uh, who is our policy director. Uh, so I hope many of you in this room know her. 
If you don't, I hope you connect with her afterwards. Well, I'm going to tell the story of Confucius Institutes. As Keith alluded to, it is a story of success, but it's also a story of warning. It's a story of success because the United States recognized the, the threat posed by Confucius Institutes, and it addressed that threat. We enjoyed a policy victory. Confucius Institutes closed. But it's also a story of warning because right now the Chinese government is trying to sidestep those policies. In military terms, this would, I think, be called an outflanking maneuver. The Chinese government is betting that if it takes away the name Confucius Institute and tweaks the structure of the program, no one will be the wiser and realize that Chinese government influence remains alive and well on American higher education. So what are Confucius Institutes? They are, quote, an important part of China's overseas propaganda setup. That was Li Chengchun, a standing member of the Politburo in 2009. He also said, quote, the Confucius brand has a natural attractiveness. Using the excuse of teaching Chinese language, everything looks reasonable and logical. In practical terms, Confucius Institutes are centers on college campuses uh, teaching Chinese language and culture. They are funded by the Chinese government, uh, which chooses and pays for the textbooks, and also selects, trains, and pays the Chinese nationals who come over to teach. Now, perhaps everything looks reasonable and logical on the outside, but the US did catch on to what the Chinese government was doing. In, in 2017, uh, I wrote a report outsourced to China that examined Confucius Institutes in depth. Uh, and this came just at a time when others were starting to question as well. And in 2018, the federal government leaped into action. The FBI began discussing higher education's, quote, naivety, and it opened investigations into Confucius Institutes. The State Department warned of, quote, malign influence via Confucius Institutes, and it designated the Confucius Institute US Center as a foreign mission of China. It audited Confucius Institutes and found a host of problems, including teachers who had misrepresented their work on their visa applications. The Department of Education and the Department of State both issued notices to school districts with Confucius classrooms, which are a K-12 version of Confucius Institutes, and members of Congress, both Republicans and Democrats, began writing to universities in their states and warning about the risk. The National Defense Authorization Act was amended twice to bar universities with Confucius Institutes from Department of Defense grants. And a number of states introduced bills as well. Uh, one of the new tools that we have available today on the NAS website, it's not in the report, it's just online, is a bill tracker. Uh, so we have a spreadsheet showing every bill that has ever been introduced on Confucius Institutes at both the state and the national level. And it, it's kind of interesting if you dig into it, if you go back far enough, there are um, actually quite a few state bills promoting Confucius Institutes. So I encourage you to look at that. Um, but as a result of this sustained national critique, colleges and universities began to close their Confucius Institutes. And this is the policy victory. In the report, um, we have a couple of charts that are, that are really um, display this quite, quite clearly, starting on page 35. Uh, if you look at um, 
the number of Confucius Institutes open on a year-by-year -year basis. Um, there have been 118 total. Uh, they peaked at 109 open at one time. Uh, but starting in 2018, it starts to fall off uh, really quite steeply. And then we also have a chart showing the number of closures per year. Um, one closed in 2012, two closed in 2014, one in 2016, a handful in 2017, and then starting in 2018, 10, then 23 closed, then 27, in 2021, 34 closed. So again, a policy victory, at least on first glance. And this is the warning. Confucius Institute has become an unattractive term, but the Chinese government just looked for a new name. It has been making an effort to rebrand its programs. So Confucius Institutes were once run by a Chinese government agency called Hanban, which has renamed itself. In 2020, as Confucius Institute closures were skyrocketing, it renamed itself the Center for Language Exchange and Cooperation, or CLEC. CLEC has also spun off a separate nonprofit, the Chinese International Education Foundation, or CIEF. So CLEC is running programs similar to Confucius Institutes under new names, and CIEF is running Confucius Institutes. We looked at all 118 Confucius Institutes that have ever existed in the United States. At least 28 of them that closed a Confucius Institute, replaced it with something very similar, usually operated in partnership with CLEC, again, the new name for Hanban, or with the same Chinese university that had been its partner in the Confucius Institute. At least 58 maintained a very close relationship with a Chinese university that had been their partner. And a handful, at least five, were so loath to close their Confucius Institute that they went out and recruited a new host for it so that the Confucius Institute didn't close, it just changed locations. In fact, the single most popular reason that colleges and universities give when they close a Confucius Institute is that they're going to replace it with another Chinese partnership. The second most popular reason is US public policy, which is almost certainly the actual driver of Confucius Institute closures. Um, another thing we released online is a database where um, we collected about 4,000 pages of documents regarding Confucius Institutes and their replacements. Uh, you can browse what our findings for about 80 colleges and universities in there, and you can see for yourself uh, the reasons that they give uh, both the reasons they give publicly and the reasons they give to their Chinese government sponsors as to why they are closing the Confucius Institute. The least popular reason that colleges and universities give is that they are concerned about the Chinese government. Only five said that, and most of them went out of their way to say they were concerned about Chinese government influence on other colleges and universities, but that their own university had been perfectly safe. So, what do these replacement Confucius Institutes look like? Here are a couple of examples. Uh, here's Northern State University. It closed its Confucius Institute in 2019. One year later, it signed a new agreement with the Center for Language Exchange and Cooperation, CLEC, Hanman's new name. Uh, CLEC will dispatch Chinese language teachers. It will pay their salaries and their travel costs, just as Hanman did. Uh, Northern State University will provide classroom space, offices, teachers housing accommodations and health insurance, just as it did for the Confucius Institute. Nothing has changed but the name. 
Then there's Georgia State University. It replaced its Confucius Institute with a Chinese language and culture program, which it runs not with CLEC, but with Beijing Language and Culture University, its former Confucius Institute partner. The two universities signed an agreement establishing the new center the same month the Confucius Institute closed in July 2020. When Georgia State announced that it was closing the Confucius Institute, it also announced this new center, which it described this way, as an opportunity to build on and expand the many achievements of the Georgia State CI, or Confucius Institute. The university also said that the new program would inherit the staff from the Confucius Institute. Now, in Georgia State's defense, the agreements they signed do include some improvements over the original Confucius Institute agreements. They pledge some protections for intellectual freedom, and they promise that American law will govern the program, unlike many Confucius Institutes that uh, said Chinese law would be in force. Yet, these are promises on paper, um, parchment barriers, James Madison would have said, and the institutional structure is overall the same. I'll give you one more example. Uh, the College of William and Mary took uh, another approach, the approach of establishing a sister university relationship. And this has become a very popular tactic as well. So it replaced its Confucius Institute with the WNM BNU Collaborative Partnership, which it runs with Beijing Normal University, its former Confucius Institute partner. The day after the Confucius Institute closed on June 30th, 2021, the university signed a new sister university agreement establishing this program. The new collaborative partnership builds on and extends the programs that the Confucius Institute had offered. And the old Confucius Institute website redirects to this new program. If you are interested in any of the details on these or on the other 100 plus programs, um, do look at the appendices in the back of this report where we summarize our findings on all universities and do look at the online database that we built as well. Um, we also have case studies on four universities, the University of Washington, Purdue, Arizona State University, and Western Kentucky University. So Confucius Institutes have given way to a new form of Chinese government influence. It's an influence that comes under a variety of new names, the Chinese government is too proactive to replace Confucius Institutes with a single new monolithic program. Instead, the approach is far more sophisticated. It is more difficult and time consuming to track. So what can be done? Well, the most immediate thing is to use the policies that worked against Confucius Institutes. The National Defense Authorization Act, as I mentioned, uh, was amended to bar Department of Defense funding from colleges and universities with Confucius Institutes, and this is how it defines a Confucius Institute. Quote, the term Confucius Institute means a cultural institute directly or indirectly funded by the government of the People's Republic of China. So these replacement programs count. They are for the purposes of the NDAA Confucius Institute, so they don't share the name. U.S. universities are betting that no one will trace those links or that the current uh, administration will not enforce the law, but the tool is right there in plain sight. Second, uh, address Confucius classrooms, the K-12 version of Confucius Institutes. 
there is no detailed research on Confucius classrooms the way that there is on Confucius institutes. And our research for this report suggests the majority of the K-12 Confucius classroom programs remain open, even though Confucius institutes have closed. Third, we should take seriously the sheer scale of the Chinese government's influence campaigns on American higher education. Uh, so here are a couple of ways to do that. Uh, institute a tax on funds institutions receive by Chinese gifts and contracts. Cap the amount of Chinese government funding universities may receive before jeopardizing their eligibility for federal funding. And prohibit federal funding to colleges and universities engaged in research partnerships with Chinese universities involved in China's military civil fusion. Finally, a brief word on transparency. Representative Banks brought this up as well. Um, Section 117 of the Higher Education Act requires colleges and universities to disclose foreign gifts and contracts exceeding $250,000 per year. And colleges have done everything they can to avoid complying with this law. The current Department of Education is aiding them by retroactively editing old disclosures to remove information. We documented that some of, some of that in this report. Um, NAS has a lot of very detailed proposals on Section 117. Uh, Teresa and I would be happy to discuss those afterwards with anyone interested. But the point I want to make here is that it is very difficult to implement policies targeting inappropriate funding from the Chinese government without knowing what funding is coming in. So many policy tools depend on the accuracy of Section 117 reporting. So it is crucial that colleges comply with the law, that the administration enforce the law, and that the law is updated to eliminate some of the loopholes that exist right now. So the story of Confucius Institutes is a story of warning, but it can once again be a story of success with increased vigilance by the United States. Thank you. Ian, if you, if you could come on up. Those were all terrific uh, openings here, presentations. Um, I really appreciate that. Uh, Congressman Banks' remarks in particular were so tight and powerful. You know, that's why we love that guy. Uh, he, he can really boil things down in a very um, strong way, but one that's also very articulate. Um, I wanted to come back first here to something that that Keith said about administrators and the need for money. Now, the, the greatest thing about your report, in my mind, is that it is so research intensive. I mean, you really did serious work uh, gathering the documents, filing the FOIA requests, et cetera, and I love that. So I apologize for starting out by asking you to speculate. Okay, but, but one of the comments in the report that caught my attention was something about, I think one of the, one of the um, university administrator says, look, we're not naive. You know, that's the thing that you've got wrong, is that we're not naive. And that jives with something that Keith says. Maybe they're not naive. I mean, in that they didn't do this out of naivete. They did it out of a need for money. They did it out of, um, you know, a need to build a new program, to name a new building, et cetera. And then on the other hand, you have professors who may actually be somewhat sympathetic to the cause that Beijing is promoting. Right, so in, in your research, what were the, um, what did it seem like to you were the motivations 
behind establishing the centers to begin with and then finding new ways to help them continue even after they have been shut down? Uh, well, colleges have been overall very interested in keeping Confucius Institutes alive. Uh, so the Chinese government has been pushing on an open door there. And if you look at the, the documents in our database, their letters to the Chinese government show that. They're, they're saying, we are so sorry, we have to close our Confucius Institute. Can we do something else instead? Um, but as to opening the Confucius Institute in the first place, the reasons are, are varied. Um, one of our case studies is the University of Washington, which has a really fascinating backstory where the um, President Hu Jintao met the governor of Washington at Bill Gates's house and pressured her into accepting a Confucius Institute on the condition that it had to be the University of Washington. And then the governor spends four or five years pressuring the University of Washington into accepting. Um, but most cases are not like that. In most cases, uh, the administrators are very happy, uh, are very eager. Um, Ian did a case study on Western Kentucky University where it, it seemed like the administrators were just thrilled that somebody with a lot of money found them important and interesting. Um, so I think the money is very enticing. The president of the, the university often gets invited on junkets to China. That's very attractive. Um, so the administration tends to be on board, and it is often the faculty who are more concerned about the Confucius Institute. Oh, that's interesting. So they go in with the eyes wide open, basically. Is that fair? For the most part, I think. Yeah. Ian, did you want to comment on that? So what I found out with the WKU is that once it came to light, the nature of the Confucius Institute, specifically some of the contractual obligations that were taking place and the agreements that were taking place between China and the university, was that every structure of the university basically protested it. You had the student government come out against it. You had faculty who were already wary of the relationship with China and the nature of the Confucius Institute to regents specifically also um, voiced concerns over it as well as the academic senate. but. Nonetheless, the contract was done ostensibly in secret. Well, I want to open it up for questions here, uh, but let me ask you one more thing uh, on that same line. Um, how, how, what's the line of sort of uh, influence around other issues? Say, things that the, the government, Hanban before, is trying to leverage into the debate on campus. For instance, um, a professor wants to do a program on Tibet. So how does it, how does it actually work where the, the presence of the Confucius Institute prevents such a thing? You understand what I'm asking? Well, this goes back to our, our first report from 2017. Um, North Carolina State University disinvited the Dalai Lama under pressure from its Confucius Institute. It's not the only university to have done that. Um, I interviewed many professors who um, felt they had to keep their mouth shut. Uh, a professor uh, once had um, Confucius Institute staff come around and take personal belongings off of his door that mentioned Taiwan. Um, I asked a, a Chinese director of a Confucius Institute, uh, what, what would she do if a student asked her about Tiananmen Square? And her answer was that um, she would show this is a direct quote, show a photograph and point out the beautiful architecture. That's the most important thing about 
that square. So there's there's definitely an element of curtailing certain conversations, um, but there's there's also an aspect of just having an ear to the ground and looking out for things that may be of use to China. To go back to the Western Kentucky University example, um, the Confucius Institute there was very intertwined with a, a coal research lab uh, that was transferring clean coal technology to the Chinese government. Um, they were extremely intertangled. They had the same staff. Um, so that was definitely a target for the Chinese government in and um, seeking to establish this at Western Kentucky University. Um, so there's definitely an element of, of um, you know, research and technology being in view. Is it self-censorship or does a call come from the provost to someone say, hey, you know, you're, you want to do this thing on Tibet, you know, we're getting a lot of money on such and such. I don't think you want to do that. Is, that, is, it, is it that bold or is it just an assumption on the part of the of the uh, faculty that certain things they can't get away with? Well, what faculty told me back in 2017 was um, they felt their tenure and promotion prospects were on the line if they caused trouble regarding the Confucius Institute. And that was enough for them to be careful what they said. Let's open it up for questions. We have two questions right down here in the Hey, uh, good morning. It's wonderful to be here, and it's great to uh, be here at this uh, forum and also to talk about this uh, subject. Uh, question, I know, Rochelle, you had talked about there hasn't been research done on K through 12 in the classrooms. Uh, uh, what can you say, at least from what you've seen in a broad spectrum, because um, I, I, I did not know about that issue, so thank you. Confucius classrooms are basically the same as Confucius Institutes, just at K-12 schools. So they're smaller versions, um, perhaps even more dangerous because you have very vulnerable, uh, impressionable young children um, being taught here. In some cases, in immersion classes where the Chinese teacher is teaching subjects other than language, they could be teaching history or economics or you name it. Um, but basically, they're the same as Confucius Institutes. In terms of there not being any research, um, nobody has a list of Confucius classrooms in the country. We don't know how many there are or where they are. Um, there, there's just a lot of knowledge gap there. Hey, thanks for doing this this morning. I've taken Chinese for like 10 years. And there was an initiative from Hillary Clinton called like 100,000 Strong, which is to have 100,000 Americans studying Chinese at a given time because there was a huge discrepancy. It was like 13 to 1, 13 Chinese kids for every one chi American going and studying Chinese in China. It's the most important bilateral relationship the U.S. is going to have in this century. And we have a lack of Mandarin speakers and we have a lack of funding to be able to fund Mandarin programs. So what's the path forward for Mandarin education in the United States? So just to counter that, I would, I, would, I would potentially say that maybe India is the primary uh, you know, number one relationship for the US this century. But if, when it comes to Mandarin, um, there's a convenient ally right next to um, the People's Republic of China called Taiwan that has plenty of Mandarin speakers. And there's also you know, plenty of uh, native uh, Mandarin speakers in the US who are US citizens and born here. 
Um, it's it, language is easy to acquire. I, I know what you went through. I, I'm an Arabic speaker, so I, uh, I know the, the need for languages. But Chinese is readily available. It doesn't have to come from Beijing. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I appreciate you raising that because I, I tried to hint at this in the, in the intro. I mean, it is important, I think, for university students or even K through 12 to learn foreign languages. And China is an important, whether you call it a relationship or not, it is central to the next few decades in American uh, foreign policy. And so it is important. So it's something to, it's something to think about. I, I wonder myself how they, how you, um, what is a legitimate way for, is there a legitimate way, is there a safe way for these colleges to maintain relationships with universities in China? Or is any relationship like that corruptible? Uh, and is it corruptible only if, it, only if it's funded? You know, like, can you have an individual relationship with a university in China where you're not taking any money, but you have a partnership, and is that then safe a safe way to pursue some of these objectives? Well, certainly any relationship is corruptible and uh, deserves some close questioning. Um, a better way to go about this would be um, for there not to be annual grants coming from the Chinese government where kind of your annual performance is being evaluated and is going to be rewarded or harmed uh, in your next grant cycle. but um, a larger sum, perhaps, that is not tied to strings, that is, you know, free for the university to spend as it sees best. That might be another approach. Yeah, I mean, it's all in the money. If if someone's giving you money, they have leverage over what you do. I mean, it's just it's just a fact. Um, right here. Yeah. Uh, my name is Kami, but I'm originally from Pakistan that is known to be a future colony of China. Uh, my question is uh, related with the Confucius Institute is about the statement of the current Vice President Harris during the campaign when she kind of warned uh, current President Biden that China has given billion of dollars to your son, Biden, Hunter Biden, and you would do anything uh, for China, you know, whatever China demands you or asks you. Uh, since you are expert in this area, can you give any kind of, uh, do you have any kind of knowledge if that statement was true or she was just trying to get him? Thanks. Slightly off topic, but, but uh, you, you're welcome to comment on that, either one of you. I don't have any insight into <laughs> yeah. that. I mean, it's similar dynamics, I, I guess we, we, we would say. Yeah. Uh, other questions? Did you have it right here? Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm Sam Nishihata from Happy Science USA Bureau. And I, uh, do you see any China's influence operations in junior and high school education, uh, level educations? Because I, I uh, one of my friends uh, was a mother of high, junior and high school students in New Jersey, and she said uh, her, her son's teacher has a, a lot of Chinese gifts, souvenirs, and there have been more and more so-called cultural exchanges between uh, Chinese schools and U.S. schools, and their uh, school trip was shifted from Japan to China. <laughs> so, and so 
she 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 has been very worried about the Chinese influence operations in junior and high school level educations. Thank you. That's what Confucius classrooms are. Uh, they're elementary, junior, and high school. Um, those programs are run. Um, by the same Chinese government agency, uh, but they benefit from another partnership, which is the College Board, best known for the SAT, uh, is encouraging those partnerships, and um, Asia Society as well has been helping them to flourish. Yeah, I think this is a bigger debate that needs to happen. It would be a logical follow-up to work on the Confucius Institutes would be a focus on Confucius classrooms. I mean, that you bring up an interesting point of whether or not we actually have sovereignty within our own education system anymore. Education is a is obviously a big hot button issue right now, and uh, it, it does raise concerns when you have a somewhat hostile power, uh, literally within uh, American classrooms. It's interesting. The, uh, the the brand Confucius Institute became a stigma, really, for a lot of people. I, I teach at Georgetown. And I remember a, uh, one of my students telling me that he learned Chinese from Confucius Institute. And he said, okay, I was soft-powered, you know? Uh, so people are kind of apologetic about having ever gone through it. And I guess part of the challenge now is to do the same thing with the new brands, right? And help people understand what they are. Yeah, all the way in the back. Sir, uh, so myself, Alit Sejaria. I'm from India, an undergrad student. And uh, so my question is with regard to whatever discussions you're uh, having right here, you're talking about, uh, say, that whenever you take money from someone and that acts as a serious incentive uh, as to the influence that they have. But what do you think uh, can be the role of, say, nationalism or for that matter, you're talking about targeting certain brands, maybe Confucius Institutes or uh, the new brands that are being created. But what if we look at uh, creating a stigma or for that matter, a general feeling in the US public about the threat that the entire Chinese apparatus poses. So instead of targeting a single brand or talking about, say, what is the threat from Confucius Institute or what is the threat from new brands, we uh, need to inculcate into the people the entire aspect that the threat is from the Chinese institution, no matter how much they rebrand themselves. And for uh, like when we have to give certain incentive, that, uh, I mean, when we have to give up certain incentive or give up certain money or basically take up cost from ourselves, there is a need of uh, certain kind of incentive or feeling. So, for example, when we talk about uh, uh, the Chinese, they use it a lot when they talk about, uh, uh, like, stroke the feelings of nationalism to curtail the imports from certain country that people voluntarily give up. So, how can we voluntarily make the American people wary about the threats and give up on these kinds of incentives that are coming from the Chinese? Well, um, I don't know if you all want to comment on that relatively broad, but, um, I mean, we're working on it every day. You know, that's what that's what we're doing. This is just one piece of it. Um, that's the broader context as you as you lay out. But I think you do have to take them on uh, one at a time, and you have to you know that is in each institution and each threat. You've got to take on one at a time and and address it in its particular uh, particular details. Um, so I agree with you, but. Um, you know, that's that's what we're about. That's what this is. This is about piece of it. This is about Confucius Institutes and the impact impact on universities. But there are many other many other aspects of the threat that we need to address. Yeah. yeah right. Hi. Uh, this I'm Yuchi, Professor Lohman. Rochelle, nice to meet you in person. Um, so, 
This is a great report. Really excited to read it. But uh, I was wondering, what do you guys think about the role of student activism in countering Confucius Institute? Because you know, government regulation can only go so far, and the left has obviously built a very effective BDS apparatus to uh, to incentivize and pressure schools to divest from Israel and stuff like that. Is that something that, say, YAF should do, like a student conservative activism should do? Or should we pursue more of a uh, bipartisan approach, say, through the Athenai Institute, which is founded by a Chinese dissident and is ostensibly bipartisan? Or should we go through a more conservative activism angle? Thank you. That was actually in the report, right? I mean, there are several instances of student activity or student-led uh, action on campus leading to eventually the closure, right? Not quite leading to closure, but coming at a time when public policy was leading them to close. So I would say both would be helpful, but um, if you look at the reasons why Confucius Institutes close, it's not generally because of student concerns or student activism. Um, that's more about raising public awareness in terms of convincing the administration. Um, I don't think student activism has so far been very effective. It couldn't have worked on its own. Right. You needed the public policy instruments for them to appeal to, I guess. So you bring up an interesting uh, correlation with BDS because that's the other uh, project I'm working on for, for NAS. Um, and so far, what I've seen is actually a very different dynamic. For BDS, it's much more of a bottom-up, uh, student-led sort of BDS movement, and then administrators don't want to divest from anything. There hasn't really been any divestment. The administrators don't follow through. Um, that's, you know, you get into pension plans and endowments and all sorts of financial issues with that. So the administrators are actually stopping a lot of the BDS movement, uh, a lot of the movement success when it comes from the bottom up. Confucius Institutes are interesting in that they're much more top down. You see administrators going to China, getting gifts, building relationships, uh, you know, signing deals, and then occasionally you do have um, student student bodies uh, get upset about the relationship with uh, Beijing, and then they will you know try to pressure. That happened with Western Kentucky. It didn't uh, really stop anything, but it does open the door for more bipartisanship uh, in terms of that, because this is a, a nationwide thing, regardless of you know ideological bent. It's uh, it's not it's not cut and dried. Uh, thank you so much for the speech. I'm from uh, King's College London. I'm a rising junior or general from Hungary, and I'm really keen to listen to this topic. Uh, I would sort of be interested to hear your opinion about the, the international networks that could um, potentially uh, counter-revolutionize the, the implications of the Chinese influence and the Chinese soft power. And um, I'd also like to take the chance to draw your attention of a recently uh, established university. It's called the, the University of Austin, UATX, which is uh, uh, sort of a counter-revolutionary idea to promote the freedom of speech. Uh, and the freedom of thought. I'm a recent alumni, alumnus from there, so I'm really keen to hear your opinion of not just maintaining the, the principles of liberty within the borders of the United States, but how can we promote it internationally and how can we uh, uh, bring back to everything to uh, the pursuit of, uh, of freedom at higher institutions. Thank you so much.
I guess there is a link there to ask about the uh, the way this your work relates um, to um, Confucius Institutes and operations outside of the United States. Is it a similar model that the Chinese are using in Europe and in other places. Do you have a sense for that? Overall, it's similar, but but there are some regional differences. I, I think in the Netherlands, Confucius Institutes are are based on contracts with individual cities, um, and then the city contracts with the university. So there are some regional differences, but a number of Confucius Institutes have closed around the world. Um, NAS has gotten to play a role in that in consulting with with policymakers in other countries. Um, so I think the trend is continuing. Yeah, um, in terms of the Confucius Institutes, um, I just heard this morning that uh, the University of Helsinki shut theirs down. <laughs> um, but India, Australia, and a bunch of other countries have shuttered their Confucius Institutes for the exact same reason. And whether or not there's actually any international sort of policy coordination between these countries, um, that would take some further looking, but they are very popular in places where China has other goals other than just education. So places like Africa, where they want rare earth elements, um, you know, things like that. Uh, strategic resources, uh, the Confucius Institutes play a large role in the developing world as a corollary to, you know, China's Belt and Road Initiative. Well, um, I think, think we have to leave it here, but um, I really appreciate National Association of Scholars Ian, uh, Rochelle, Keith, thank you so much for bringing us this report, for all your hard work on it. It really is an extraordinary piece of work. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here. Good luck to you. Thank you.